Well, hello, friends. How are we doing? I am fired up about today. This is one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture. And as we get ready to dive in, I'm going to tell you a story. A number of years ago, I was on my way with a buddy just driving north. And as guys in their 20s, it was 30 years ago, uh, are prone to do, be fairly spontaneous. We were approaching Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and we saw a sign that said skydiving. And we said, hey, why not? I've always wanted to do it. And so we pulled in and we got in there and uh, we found out all we could about it and, and uh, decided to sign up right then. This is before the days where they did tandem jumping where uh, you awkwardly strap yourself to another guy and jump out of a plane. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to jump out from as high as I could by myself and uh, a little later got to do that. But to start, you uh, do what's called a static line jump. At least that's what we were doing in that day, way back in the day. And so a static line jump is where basically um, there is a... A, uh, a wire that is tied to your parachute that when you jump out, it's on a static line inside the plane and it deploys your chute for you. But um, there are still things that can go terribly wrong. And so they want to put you through a series of um, just tests and training to make sure that you would know what to do if things go wrong. Well, it turns out just myself and one other guy wanted to do it. My buddy was along for the ride to take pictures. That's what he decided to do. But uh, the guy that I was going through this with was uh, a Vietnam vet. And uh, it was about 15, 20 years after being out, out of Nam, and he had PS, PTSD and some other issues, and he thought he would deal with it by um, facing some of his fears. The last time he jumped out of a plane, it was into combat, and so he was there just to do that again as part of his healing. And so my new friend and I were going through the training, and then at some point they get you, and they put you in harnesses where uh, while you're sitting there in that harness, they kind of throw at you different problems that could happen. So the first problem they threw at us was like horseshoe. So horseshoe is when the chute deploys, but it wraps around some part of your body, your arm, or more typically sometimes even if you're at the wrong position, your leg, and it doesn't deploy very well, and you don't float down appropriately, and you often uh, end up really hurting yourself. Well, I did what I was supposed to do to shake free of the horseshoe and whatnot in this harness, and uh, my buddy just locked up. This, this ex-Vietnam vet just kind of had a bit of a flashback and didn't move at all. And so the jump master gets up in his grill a little bit and says, hey, listen, buddy, you want to get up in that plane with me in just a little bit? You got to know what to do. I got to know you're going to be able to respond if things don't go right, because things don't always go right. I mean, you could die or you'd be seriously maimed. And the guy kind of went, that which doesn't kill me only makes me stronger. Nietzsche. All right, now that was weird. I'll just say it was weird, right? So I'm kind of like, I'm glad that dude's hung up right there and tied down like that. And, uh, and, and we kind of went, okay, man. Uh, on we go with the training, right? And so we did that, and then they threw out another deal. This one was a streamer, I think. And so a streamer is just basically when the chute doesn't fully deploy, and there's some things you got to do to basically release your main and then go to your secondary chute and all that different stuff. And I didn't do exactly what the guy wanted me to do. I got a little out of order, and so he gets up in my grill. And he says, hey, did you hear what I said to him? If you can't do this, we're not going to put you up there. All right? If you're not dead, you're going to wish you were as hard as you hit. And I went, to live is Christ. <laughs> to die is gain. Paul, right? And uh, so we had a good laugh out of that, and I had a chance just to talk to those guys uh, about the gospel, and we sat there and I, you know, hung out by each other, literally, and, uh, and talked about Jesus and the hope that we have. But I want to tell you that, um, that that perspective that I had, which is, look, you know, as a, I heard a friend of mine say this week, man, no one likes to get hurt. It, it hurts, right? I mean, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want things to not go well, but, but life is not always going to go well. And what I want to share with you is this little section of scripture, because life won't go well with you if you don't live with the mindset of Paul in Philippians chapter one, verses 22 through 30. It is Paul telling you how he is doing, how you can experience life indeed. Last week, JP did a great job. We talked about how there's a, uh, a Harvard Business Review. An article just came out uh, that just said that a leader's mindset and mood and behaviors is what drives the, the moods and the behaviors of everyone else. And Paul is writing this book to his friends, and he wants them to know his mindset, his mood, his attitude, his joy in the midst of what hasn't been an easy life to this point. One of the things that I hear from people all the time is uh, they kind of go, hey, man, you know, Todd, where is this abundant Christian life? Where, where's this fullness that you talk about? I mean, Jesus said, you know, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, but I'm not feeling the abundant life, man. And typically when I lean in and ask people why they're not experiencing the abundant life, it's because they don't think like Paul. 
Literally, the translation of Philippians chapter 1, verse 22 is this. Live, that's Jesus. I'm all in with him. Die, gain. That's really all he says. But Paul's saying, this is my perspective. This is why my life is rich. This is why it's full. Henry David Thoreau is the guy that said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And men, I tell you, I have seen that. For you to live for anything other than that which isn't fleeting and momentary is going to make you question, where is the abundant life? For you to have somebody teach you what it means to follow Christ in a way that is not consistent with scripture is going to make you ask the exact same question as people who don't know Christ at all. And what I want to do today is help you understand what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's basically what it means. Are you alive? It should be all about Jesus. Right? I mean, um, my friend Howard Hendricks, who um, influenced a lot of guys that are leading in the church today, is the one that said, my fear for you is not that you would fail, but that you would succeed in doing the wrong things. And I want to tell you, I think that's God's fear for you. You're not going to experience life as he intends. You're not going to flourish as he intends if you don't live the way he wants. Being alive and living are two very different things. Just because you're breathing doesn't mean you're alive. It's been said by a lot of people that my biggest fear in life is not that I would die, but that I would die without ever really having lived. And I want you all to really live. Um, we have a lot of podcasts around here. One of them is the CLC, the Church Leaders Podcast, which I highly commend to you. Why? Because it's what we do to equip churches that come and hang out with us throughout the year, um, uh, throughout the year to help them be strengthened in what God wants them to do. Our Church Leaders Podcast is, is um, you know, every place you can find podcasts, iTunes and other spots, and I would encourage you to check it out. But we started a new one not long ago. My friend Nathan Wagnon in the equipping ministry started an equipping podcast. And uh, I don't know if they'll ever produce another good podcast or not, but this one that I'm about to tell you about is worth your time listening to. Um, Nathan interviewed a guy named David and actually Karen Eubank. David and Karen lead a ministry called Free Burma Rangers, which are really kind of interesting. Um, David was a ranger in the United States military. Okay, and while he was in the United States military, he was all over the world building relationships and serving in our government. Um, some of them have led him to go back to places where there is an incredible crisis. Um, they primarily live in Myanmar, which is modern, or we know as Burma, most of us, um, where they work with the Burmese people. But every now and then he'll get a phone call, like he has a friend in, uh, who's a general in the Iraqi army, who used to fight alongside Saddam Hussein, who when Saddam Hussein was eradicated, he, he continued to uh, stay as a part of the army and really wanted to see freedom and, and um, come to his land and, and a lack of oppression to his people, but their resources are limited. And so he's called David and said at one point, David, listen, ISIS is overrunning our country on more fronts than we can handle. And I'm not asking you to come and go to war with them because you know, you really can't do that, but I'll get you in the country. If you and your team of operators will go and live and care for people and rescue them every time you see ISIS come in. And so David Eubank and his wife, Karen said, well, that's where there's a need. We've got a friend that's asked us to come. And so he and some of his ex-military friends and his family of five moved to Mosul. Here they are, here's a picture of them. This is uh, now, there's David, his wife, Karen. He's got his 18-year-old uh, daughter up there, Sahel, and his 15-year-old daughter, Suzanne, and, and uh, his 12-year-old son, Peter. Peter wasn't 12 in that picture, but you get the idea. And I'm listening to this podcast about this family that lives in Mosul during ISIS's occupation of it, and they're in there because when there's crisis, they're trying to extract people and protect them. Now, I listened to this podcast with my kids, at least a couple of them, as I was driving Friday with them somewhere, and, um, and we started listening to what they were experiencing, and they asked him specifically questions like this. Nathan wisely said to the kids, hey, what's it like? Okay, I mean, here you are, teenagers, and, and you're living in the midst of all this chaos. And they just said, listen, we're not really concerned about Xbox. We're not concerned about whether or not we just won the last Fortnite battle. We're trying to stay alive. We're not caught up in just a lot of the typical stuff that American teenagers are, and our, our lives are different. We have pet monkeys, right, in Burma. Uh, we eat snake and eel. 
We um, have friends from all different parts of the world. We have a different perspective. And he goes, well, what's it like? Tell us a story of some of the things you've experienced. And so it was funny because uh, Suzanne, who was uh, 15 when she told the story, she said, well, it was, I'll tell you this. When actually the sister goaded her, tell us, Suzanne, tell her what you said um, you know, last year when we were in Mosul. She goes, about what? She goes, well, when you were doing the laundry. She goes, oh, yeah. She goes, I was doing the laundry one day, and the way we do laundry in Missoula is there's no washers and dryers, so we wash our clothes in the house, and then those clothes are never going to dry unless you take them up to the roof to hang them. And so I went up the roof to hang my clothes, and I came down the steps, and I said this. I announced kind of the house, which included some ex-Special Forces guys who were there in it with us, and I said as a 14-year-old girl, is it too much to ask that a 14-year-old girl could go up on the roof to do her laundry just one time and not get shot at by ISIS snipers? Now you listen to that and you're kind of like, what? This guy's completely irresponsible that he's taking his kids into a war zone. But listen to the podcast. David and Karen talk about why they're there and what they're doing. I look at my kids. I go, hey, has that been your challenge this week? Right? (laughs) Where are you going that Jesus wants you to go that you're putting yourself at risk in a conversation? See, here's the deal. ISIS snipers know that those folks are there and around there and they're always looking for people that aren't there to advance their cause. So up on the roof, there's a little three-foot-high ceiling, and what they did at night is they string across wires, so when they do their laundry, they can go up there, but what they do is they army crawl from wire to wire with their clean clothes, and they throw it up over the wire, and they straighten it, because if you put your hand up there, they know somebody's on the roof, and they start shooting at you. And so there's 14-year-old girls up there loving people in the name of Jesus, rescuing them from the trouble, hanging her laundry, and she comes down, and that's what she says. There was a special forces guy there who said, hey, have you got a Twitter account? Because you've got to tweet that. There's no other 14-year-old girl saying that. And I just said to my kids, I go, here's the deal. Listen, you don't need to go to Mosul to live radically for Jesus and to rescue people. But if that father's willing to put his daughter at risk to live in that land, and she's willing to do her laundry that way and have to go up and avoid sniper fire just to dry her clothes... Does it challenge you a little bit with how you're living? Now, listen, I, I hear that, and I'm like, I'm all in. I ask my wife. I go, that's our next family you know, vacation with a purpose right there. Let's go hang out with the Eubanks. <laughs> all the enthusiasm in the car wasn't matched with mine in general. But I'm like, this is living. And I want to tell you, I'm inspired when I hear what Paul did. I'm inspired when I hear what some of you are doing in Frisco and Plano and Fort Worth and here in Dallas. You don't need to go to Mozul to be on mission. And frankly, I hit pause right there and I I talked to my kids about how we can live boldly and courageously right where we're at. That's what we need to do. Now, let me just say this. The reason I love this message is because it's what, if we don't do as a church, we're not the church that God wants us to be, the church we should be, but because it's where life indeed is found in courageous, bold, purpose filled living, marked by love. I want you to experience that with me, okay? Now watch, um, Viktor Frankl, who um, was a Nazi Holocaust survivor, actually studied the lives of individuals who lived in concentration camps, and he was trying to figure out why certain people survived and certain people thrived and why certain people just surrendered and wilted and eventually died. He actually wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning when he got out. Victor Frankl. And what he observed is that the reason that some people um, survived this gruesome experience of Auschwitz was that the guys that, 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 that made it out and that, that even got stronger in the midst of it had three distinctives about him. I want you to see what he said. He goes, the people that did well in Auschwitz had a purpose for their life. Secondly, they loved others. They, they, they were marked by a concern for something more than themselves. That was a big part of their purpose. I've got to stay strong so that as I'm strong, I can use my strength to help others, to speak to them, to encourage them, to comfort them. And then thirdly is they had a mindset about them, he said, which primarily was um, just a strength of Uh, understanding that life was about more in this moment than just the suffering that was there. They had a hope. They had a perspective that helped them deal with disappointment. In other words, that this world was not all there is. Now, what's so interesting about Frankel's observation is that's exactly 
what Paul wrote about in Philippians. Frankel was not a believer at the time. He was a Jew. I don't even think he ever went on to embrace the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. But had he, he would have read Philippians and he would have basically known how to thrive in a concentration camp. Can I just say this to you? There are all kinds of people right here in your city that are not thriving in the concentration camp of prosperity and the current of this world. And they need to see people who know how to live. I love to read the stories of people who live their life with purpose, with meaning, and a perspective that helps them have courage in the face of difficulty. One of them is a guy named C.T. Studd. First of all, because what a great name, right? <laughs> C.T. Studd was a world-class athlete. He lived in England uh, you know, around in the 30s and the 40s. And he was, a world, as I said, a world-class athlete, a cricket player, which would put him like, uh, think an NBA star, think a, a Major League Baseball, Cy Young Award winner type person. I mean, it's a well-known, one of the most famous people in all of England. C.T. Studd came to a place where he understood this. This is a famous statement by him. He said, if it is true that Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice is too great. And I want to go live for him. He's the one that famously said, um, some want to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell, but as for me, I want to run a rescue shop a yard from the gate of hell. He wants to live his life on purpose, loving other people and rescuing them from the concentration camp of just that which is stolen and killed and destroyed, their meaning and hope and purpose in life. And he wants to be an individual who has courage in the face of all the disappointment that comes. And C.C. Studd became famous for the way that he brought hope to children in China during a very oppressive communist regime. He took the gospel to them and he lost his life actually there at a very young age. C.C. Studd said this, and I want you to hear me when I read this to you. Um, he said, when you decide to follow Jesus, you better know what it means to follow Jesus. The romance of missionary work, he wrote, is often made up of what really is monotony and drudgery. In other words, it's a day-by-day -day trust and obey. It's not some whiz-bang every moment God's parting sees. It is just the monotony of faithfulness and love and self-sacrifice. He said, often there is no glamour to it. It doesn't stir a man's spirit or blood, just that long obedience in the same direction. But he says this, come be here with me in this life of purpose of living for Jesus. If, if you feel there is no greater honor than living for Christ. Don't come out, he says, to be a missionary um, as an experiment. That's useless and dangerous. Okay, let me say this to you. You need to know this. It is useless and dangerous to just be a churchman. Somebody who's kind of dip your toe and what's Jesus want for me? You'll think that what Jesus wants for you is to live is to tithe, to live is to go to church, to live is to listen to KLTY. Oh man, please spare me from that. <laughs> to live, to live is what I'm going to describe to you today. To live is to be all in. And, and what, what C.T. Stubb was saying, it is useless and dangerous just to play like you really mean live Christ. Die game. Unless you have that perspective, you will not be who God wants you to be. Watch what he says. Only come if you feel you would rather die than not come. This is what Jesus said. That's why C.T. Studd, I'm quoting him, because he's quoting Jesus. If any man wishes to come after me and follow me, let him die. Let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. C.T. Studd did that. Don't come if you want to make a great name or want to live long. Come if you feel there is no great honor after living for Christ than to die for him. Guess where he got that? To live for Christ and to die for him. Philippians 1.22. These men inspire me. David Livingstone, one more I'll just tell you. And I read these guys because um, I, I, I want to go, I want to be that guy. I want to be that in my generation. That's why I need you to pray for me. That I would become more radicalized for Christ. And I'm going to show you what it means to be radicalized for Christ. It doesn't mean that you're going to do crazy stuff and hurt people who disagree with you. It means that you'll love your enemies more and more. It means you'll speak the truth in love more and more. It means that you're willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel more and more. It means that you'll bring joy and strength to people. Be the salt and light that God intended you to be. You need to pray for me that I'd be more radicalized for Christ. And you need to know something. If you don't want to become more radicalized for Christ, don't be a member at Watermark because that's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that if God calls you to Mosul while it's occupied by ISIS, you'd go, I'm in. 
I'm in as long as I know that's where Jesus wants me to go and listen to why Dave and Karen think they should be there. I know today God's got me right here. And I wanna be as faithful on my rooftops, hanging my laundry and loving the people that God's got me in the presence of as I can be. David Livingstone, as a doctor, left the comforts of England with all his education. And um, he went uh, into the darkness, into the center of Africa where nobody would go. He said, listen, I'll tell you, there's only one group actually that had gone into Central Africa. You know who it was? People that were to live as make profit. How'd they make profit? They went and they took um, Africans and they kidnapped them. They sold them into the slave trade. He said, cannot the love of Christ carry the missionary where the slave trader carries the trader? I shall open up a path to the interior that they may know Jesus or perish. I'm like, you go, David. You go. This is 1800s. Lost his son on a journey there. His wife died. He died there on his knees. The African people loved him. They carried his body 900 miles across Central Africa to the coast to mail it home after they cut his heart out and buried it underneath their tree. And they're saying, the heart of this man, the heart of our God that we've come to know through him is going to stay here. <laughs> Let's go. That's who I want to be. And the only way you're going to be that is if you get Philippians 1, 22 through 30. If you understand who Jesus is, if he is God and he died for you, then live is his. Let's go. Watch this. I'm going to just remind you where Paul comes out of Philippians 1, verse 18. This is where we were last week at the very end. Paul says, what then? You think I care that I'm in prison? What then? You think I care that people are, are, are slandering me and taking advantage of the fact that I'm in prison and maybe preaching the gospel out of an ulterior motive? No, I only care this. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. You want to make me be happy? You want to see me rejoice? Tell me that Christ is being proclaimed. I will rejoice. Verse 19. I know that this is all going to work out for my deliverance, my ultimate salvation, wherever this thing goes. I'm either get to live for my king, which is going to be the first thing I'm going to ask him for the privilege of doing is going back to earth and live for him, which he's not going to let me. It's going to be all bless him forever. But I know that if I see with eyes that know him in all the fullness that he knows me right now, the first thing I'm going to want to do is go live for him on earth to tell friends in the heart of Africa, in Mosul and in Dallas, Fort Worth, Plano and Frisco, I'm in to let them know about the love of Christ. He says this. I need your prayers. There's something supernatural that happens when we pray for one another. I need you to pray for me. That I would have a lion's heart like Paul. That I'd be like Henry Martin. That I'd be like David Livingstone. That I would be like David Brainerd. That I would be like Charles Spurgeon. That I'm more of what Jesus wants. That's why we're going to be here tonight on our knees praying that God would strengthen us and convince us that we would be lions for Christ. That's why Alexander the Great, when he ran against up, up against men who had purpose and courage in the face of disappointment, he said we were in trouble. Alexander the Great said this, I'd rather fight an army of 99 lions led by a lamb than an army of 99 lambs led by a lion. I want to be a lion, man. I want to strengthen people. I am a lamb. I'm a sheep who was led by a lion. And it strengthens me. And I want to be that. I want to see Jesus multiplied in you and me. This is the amazing thing. We should pray for each other that he would. And then secondly, look what it says. And that the provision of the spirit of Christ would, would be the means through which you could do this. The word there, it's epikorygia. It's, it's one of my favorite words in ancient Greek. It's a word that basically we get, korygia uh, is where we get choreography from, right? When you think choreographer, don't think Paul Abdul. Don't think, uh, you know, Michael Jackson thriller. When you hear choreographer, in ancient Greece, what a choreographer was, was a very wealthy benefactor who lived in the city. And the choreographer would, would give money. He would endow money to the arts. He'd build um, uh, both stages and then hire script writers and then buy uh, costumes so that that community could put on plays that would teach values and would uh, instruct through the arts great truths that would cause people to give that community renown. A choreographer is one who brought all the resources for you to dance in the world in such a way that people came to watch you. And Paul takes that term 
and says, the Holy Spirit is that. Your prayers are used by God along with the provision, the epichoregia of the Spirit of Christ. He is the one who gives us the ability to do this. It's not the courage of Todd. It's not the courage of David Eubanks or David Livingstone. It's the Spirit of God, the Lion of the Lamb of Judah, who lives in you, and you follow him and decrease that he might increase, that produces a Philippians 1, 22 through 30 life. Watch what he says. It is my earnest expectation. That, that word is great. It's like, I, I extend my neck. That's literally what it means. I'm, I'm looking forward to. I hope in that I'm not going to be put to shame in anything. Why? Because I know who wins. I know I will not be disappointed. I can't lose. God plus one is the majority. If God is for me, who can be against me? This is not going to turn out poorly for me if I live like Jesus. Because to die will be gain. I love this. All I care about is that with all boldness, Christ will even now is always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Can I get an amen? Look, that's who we ought to be. Now watch, this is what he says. That's why he gets to verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul just basically says this, for me, life is Jesus. For me, death, gain. Now he's gonna walk you through that a little bit. Verse 22. I'm telling you, if I'm going to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Let me ask you a question. It's November 4th. We're going to gather in here corporately tonight to pray, hopefully, so our hearts can be more of the Lion of the Lamb of Judah. But we're going to be back here again in a week, November 11th. What will have happened between November 4th, 2018, November 11th? And if it is not fruitful labor for the King of Kings, you have lived a life of quiet desperation. Paul says, all I know is I'm going to get after it. I know what I selfishly want. I hope I don't get out of these chains. I hope there's a kangaroo court that says I'm guilty and they lop my head off. That's what he says basically right here in verse 23. I'm hard pressed from both directions. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, but that is very much better than staying here. Why does he say that? Well, you need to know this about Paul. This is, let me just remind you Paul's life up until this time. When he was writing to uh, the Corinthians, he reminds them in, in chapter four, verse 17, he said, hey, you know, the, the momentary light afflictions that you're going through, that's what he said everything on earth is. It's a momentary light affliction. And it produces for us an eternal weight of glory, fall beyond all comparison. And so I'm ready, though, for these light afflictions to leave me. What are the light afflictions of Paul? Watch this. This is two chapters later in chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. He says this, but in everything, I commend myself only as a servant of Christ. In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. He gets to chapter 11 in the same book. So, so go ahead five more chapters to verse 23. This is what Paul says. Watch this. There are people accusing him of not being God's servant, God's apostle. He said, I, I guess, look it. Are these guys who are saying this about me, servants of Christ? I speak as if insane because I'm about to basically give you my resume, but I'm much more so than they are. I, I in far more labors and far more imprisonments, I've beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Watch, this is Paul. This is why he's saying, I'm ready to die. If the chute doesn't open, that's awesome. He just says this. He says, five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. You can't receive 40 because the Jews believe no man could endure 40 beatings, 40 lashes. So they always stopped at 39 because they didn't want to kill you. They just want to teach you to stop living the way that they didn't like the way you were living. Three times I was beaten with rods. Lashes weren't enough. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and the day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. I've been shot at by ISIS snipers. I've been criticized by my friends. People said mean things about me on social media. I'm not as popular as I once was than my old friends. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me of a concern for all the churches. Day and night, I pray for you. That's what he implies. I, I see why he goes. I'm not really sure I want to get out of here. If this is the end, man, take me to glory because I've lived for Christ. But, but he says this, and I'll just make this comment. 
See, most of us aren't hard-pressed by the two things that Paul was hard-pressed from, right? That's what he says right here in verse 23. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Here are the two directions that Paul has pulled. I love God. I long to know him more and be with him forever. But I love you, people that Christ died for. And so I want to come, continue to stay here and suffer hardship and beatings so you can know more of Jesus. Most of us are like, man, I'm, I'm torn. I'm torn between my love for the world and, and, and being a churchman. This one will make you live lives of quiet desperation, and this one is nothing that God ever called you for. Paul says, I am all in, and I want to be what he wants me to be. That's why you pray for me. Pray that Todd would not love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. He would not love the world, the things in the world, but that the love of the Father would be in him. That's what I'm praying for you. So that our lives would count, our lives would matter, so that we would not die without living. God's calling you to the greatest life imaginable. You want the abundant life? Live for something that's never going to fade and never going to pass away. You be a minister of the king of kings. I love what Livingstone said. He said um, at one point when he was talking to people, he said, look, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? There is nothing that would be a, should be considered a sacrifice if we're living the way that Jesus wants us to live because we're getting to honor and serve him. It's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against Nazi oppression and fascism in the, in the 30s and 40s, said this, not in the flight of ideas. That's what churchmen talk about, philosophy and Bible study and scripture. And we should know the scripture, but we shouldn't just talk about it. We should be like Livingstone again. I love this. This is what the natives said about Livingstone. Livingstone lived the life of the book that he carried and preached. See, Philippians 1 is living the life of the book that we're preaching through right now. Bonhoeffer said, not in the flight of ideas, but only in action is freedom. Make up your mind and come out into the tempest of the living. This is where life is. And Paul's saying, look, it's better for me to go, yet, verse 24, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you. And so Paul says, I'm pretty convinced that I'm going to hang around here because I don't get the sense that God's done with me yet. He was right. He eventually um, wasn't tried, probably because the Jews didn't want to follow him all the way from Caesarea to go testify against him in Rome when he appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. That's what he did, and they probably never showed up. And the, Jews, and the Romans didn't take lightly a false accusation. They knew they couldn't defend what they were going to say about Paul, so eventually his case was dismissed. He was let free. What do you think Paul did? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He went back and visited the churches he had daily concern for. And then he wanted to get further into Spain, further to the west where the gospel had not gone yet. But eventually he was rearrested by Nero, who became more and more maniacal in his um, senility. And Paul was beheaded six years after he wrote this letter. But he had work to do and some living for Christ to do. And while he was living for Christ, he believed that his living was going to be a blessing to others. I want to stop right here and ask you again. What's your living going to do this week? Is it necessary for you to be alive in your context for others to see the kindness, the power, the truth of who Jesus is? Or are you going to be basically largely somebody indifferent, a churchman who came today and then goes back on to be obsessed with the Cowboys playing tomorrow night or why Texas keeps losing? Or are you going to just say, I'll tell you what, I might enjoy a cowboy game just for a little bit, but I'm going to get back to war. I'm a soldier, and I'm not going to entangle myself in the affairs of everyday life. That I might please the one that will listen to me as a soldier. That's where life is found. I'm going to go to work, and you should go to work, and you should be excellent. Whatever you do, do heartily for the Lord, not unto men. But you don't want to live just to make the stock price of your company go up. Listen. Be excellent in what you do at work. I believe the work of the church is the church at work. And the way we work ought to be a blessing to everybody around us. But that's not just because we do our jobs well. 
We're not so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. No, we're heavenly minded. We know we honor Jesus by doing everything with excellence. But the most excellent thing that we can do is be in touch with our people who are maybe caught up in a world, a concentration camp of promotion and the next thing or the next car or the next fleeting relationship or the next strip joint. And you need to rescue them from that concentration camp and they respect you because they see you're great at all things and you love them. You have a purpose to your life. You're focused on who they are and you have a courage to face disappointments that they can't explain. The world needs those people. Paul said, that's why I'm not going to die. Because I got some living to do for Jesus. He says this, and I got to tell you, I'm just going to stop right here and just insert this quick story. And um, the church who doesn't do this, that bastardized, feckless, compromised church, is why the world doesn't really respect Jesus. They don't see us love the way he loved. They don't see us live with purpose the way he lives with purpose. They don't see us having hope. They see us on as much antidepressant medication as they're in. They see divorce happening in our communities the way it happens in theirs. They see us being trapped and caught up in the current of the ways of the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life just like them. What do you mean you know this lion king? When the church doesn't do its job, people suffer. In 2008, I got a phone call from my friends in Africa. Our partner in Africa is African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. We'd actually been in Africa um, a number of years earlier over there, not far from where Livingstone went. It was a little bit safer time, a little more comfortable journey for me than it was for Livingstone. But in 2006, we were in Kenya, up in the northern regions by Mount Kenya in Neri, and we did a pastor's conference where we talked about leadership, conflict resolution, forgiveness, and the role of the church in restoring and maintaining peace. Now, Kenya was uh, kind of a bastion of hope in the middle of uh, chaotic Central Africa. Uh, You guys might remember in 1994, there was um, a great genocide that happened in Rwanda. Racism in America is typically related to skin color. Racism in Africa has nothing to do with skin color, but it's every bit as offensive and prevalent today in Africa as it was then. In fact, in 2008, this stable country, Kenya, that wasn't as murderous as Rwanda had been and Burundi had been and other nations around them had been, ran into a real crisis. It happened when... um, President Kabaki's party um, claimed victory in an election that was still being disputed over a guy named Odinga's ODP party. Now, in, in, in Kenya, there's all kinds of tribes. You know, we would just say, I thought they were all Kenyans. And they go, oh, no, we're not all Kenyans. There's Kikuyus, there's Luyas, there's Luaus, there's Kalenjins, there's Kisi. There's all kinds of tribes that are there in Africa. And they are not Kenyans first. Typically, they are Kikuyu's first, or Luya's first, or Kisi's first. Except it shouldn't be that way in the church. Now, what happened when this election was disputed? There were certain regions where the Luhu people were the majority, and they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so they became violent against Kikuyu brothers, and the violence spread all around the country. Interestingly enough, outside observers said there was one region of Kenya that didn't get as violent, it was in Neri. And they said it was because the churches played a role in Neri that they didn't play in other places. And they brought peace and calm to the people. We had been there teaching in Neri two years before, and they called us and said, hey, would you, just one other person, come over here and go into Kakamega, it's western Kenya, in the Rift Valley, right there on the border of Uganda, where the most murderous part of this basically um, uprising had happened. And we need you to go in there and do some of that same training and teaching and helping people. I remember before I left, some folks said, you're crazy. I had a 15-year-old, 13-year-old, 11-year-old, 9-year-old, 7-year-old, and 3-year-old at the time. I wrote them this note, actually, the night before I left. Here was the note. Remember that you are immortal until the Lord is done with you. That's a David Livingston quote that he actually stole from Henry Martin that inspired David Livingstone to do this. And then I have this quote by Spurgeon, who was inspired by David Livingstone after it. It said, if the Lord has more witness for you to bear, you're going to live to bear it. Who is he that can break the vessel which the Lord intends again to use? 
If there's no more work for you to do for your master, cannot distress you that he is about to take you home and put you where you will go beyond the reach of your adversaries. In other words, hey, there's going to be a day, Paul, when there's going to be no more rods, no more beatings. I'm going to take you out of the hand of your adversaries. And I know you want to come here, but no, I got work for you to do. It looks like the Lord had at least 10 more years of work for me to do. So cockamega wasn't my end. But your witness bearing for Jesus, I wrote this to my kids, is your chief concern. And you cannot be stopped until it is finished. Therefore, be at peace. Cruel slander, wicked misrepresentation, desertion of friends, betrayal by the most trusted one, and whatever else may come cannot hinder the Lord's purpose for your life. He stands by you in the night of sorrow. You be bold for Christ. And then I wrote one thing for each one of them. And then I went and got on a plane and went to Kakamega. And I got there and there was still chaos. There was still um, fires. There was a huge population of people and IDP camps, internally displaced people camps, and we just gathered a church and started to teach him. One of the very first people I met with was a guy named Bishop Nicholas Masai, who was a Luya, the tribe that was causing most of the violence at this time. And I sat with him, and I basically asked him what he did during this time. Well, he had a guy who worked with him whose name was Daniel, who was a Kikuyu, and they had worked together in the church, and they got along just fine until the riots started. And then the Luyu eldership and pastor and bishop came to Daniel and said, you've got to get out of here. We're not going to protect you. The people are, are, are wanting Kikuyu blood. And they said, you've got to leave the church, Daniel. And not only do you got to leave, but the Kikuyu people, we're not going to help. And so I asked him the question, well, what would have happened if you would have helped them? And the guy said, well, I, I don't know. But we couldn't bring them to the church because they were burning the church. I said to him again, I go, what would have happened if you brought them to the church? He says, I don't know what would have happened. And then I said this to Nicholas. I go, I'll tell you what would have happened, Nicholas. One of two things. Either the church would have stood strong, the people would have come to their senses and healing and hope would have rushed into Kakamega. The church would have been made more famous and effective and brought healing to the people. Or you'd have been burned with all the other Kikuyus and murdered with all the Kikuyus in the area. And your blood, like the blood of the martyrs in Uganda in 1890, would have started a revival in your country. But either way, you would have gained. Jesus would have been made more famous and the gospel would have gone forth. So do you hear what I just asked that guy to do? I had asked him, hey, I bid you to go and die and stand for what the church is. He looked at me and he said, Todd, we would have lost our church building. They would have burned it if we told them the Kikuyus were in there with us when they were looking for them. And I said this to him. I said, can I suggest to you something? You don't have a church. All you've got is a building. You're to love people, not buildings. We can let them burn buildings. You can't let them kill and burn people. He said, this was a crazy time. It was a moment of testing. And I, like Peter, failed. And I said to him what the Harvard Business Review later wrote about. I said, Nicholas, the hearts of the people will never surpass the hearts of its, of its leader. The mood and behavior of the leader is going to be the mood and behavior of the people. And it was the church that was part of the murderous gang. He started to weep. He started to um, say, what do I do? I said, you get on your knees and you ask for forgiveness. You go and tell people that it's going to stop. You're going to start to love your Kikuyu brethren. You're not going to be a part of a tribalism because you live for Jesus. And this bishop went and sought the forgiveness of his people and acknowledged what had happened. I told him, I said, let me just tell you something. You mentioned that you were like Peter who struggled in a time of testing. Let me just tell you about Peter. When Jesus was crucified, we all know that Peter betrayed him, but later that risen Lord, he said, when he came back, he told Mary, go tell the disciples and tell Peter specifically that I'm risen. In other words, it's not over. He hasn't betrayed me forever. When Jesus saw Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? Then tend to my sheep, be a lion, care for my sheep. And I said, Nicholas, here's what happened. That same Peter that failed him, like you just failed that same Jesus, he became God's man and he started to lead a church that changed the world. And so can you. But it's got to start with you figuring out who you love, your Luhu brethren or your Lord. I'll just compare and contrast them to this guy. I was in El Salvador last week. I don't know if you guys know this thing called the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. It's the most dangerous place on earth right now. There's more homicides per capita right now in that little Northern Triangle than anywhere else on earth. El Salvador is the worst of the three, and the districts that we went into in San Salvador, the capital city, was the worst of all those districts. One of the church leaders I met with just a week ago today was this guy. It's Miguel. 
Remember, I'm doing all this out of this idea is, is it necessary for you to be alive? Because Kakamega didn't need a compromised church underneath Bishop Nicholas. It needed a lion leader, just like they have here in San Salvador. This is my friend Miguel. Seven years ago, Miguel's only son was killed by MS-13. And he was angry with God. He said, I stayed up, Todd, I can't tell you how many nights in a row crying, complaining to God that he would let my son die. And finally, one night, he said, I can't explain it to you. The Lord spoke to me. It wasn't an audible words, but he just said to me, he said, why are you crying, Miguel? And he said, I'm crying because of my son. And the Lord said to me, you will see your son again. But for now, you've got work to do. What happened is there was an MS-13 guy that got out of jail. He had an 80-year sentence. He got out because of intimidations inside the legal system. And this guy was trying to see if he could make a change in his life. And so he went to Miguel, a guy that was part of the gang that killed his son, and said, will you help me? And Miguel said, yes, I've got work to do. He loved him. He sheltered him. He discipled him. This guy went and said to the rest of his gang, you've got to come meet this guy, the one whose son we killed. It turns out not long after that, 300 MS-13 gang members start meeting with Miguel. He shares with them the love of Christ and why he forgives them and why as a man he wants to hate them, but for him to live is Christ. And they have judgment coming and he wants them to know who he is. There was a revival inside the MS-13 gang in that region. They actually came to him and told him, you need to know this. We've just killed the guys that killed your son. They were never supposed to kill your son. Your son just happened to have the same name of somebody else that we had told them to go hit and they didn't do their work, and so we have executed them. I asked Miguel, I said, how many of these people in your church have been affected by MS-13? He said, every single person has lost a family member to him. And I go, what do they think about you loving him? He goes, some people have left my church, but the church of Jesus once in San Salvador is still here. Can I tell you something else? I went to preach at a young adult gathering that night And the MS-13 gang got words out saying to any young adults, if you go to that thing, it's not going to go well with you because Satan is a punk and he's scared to death of Jesus. And they know that they cannot handle the power of Christ who goes into a city. The government doesn't know what to do. Uh, the, The military doesn't know what to do. But I'm going to tell you what is making a difference in San Salvador. It's the faithful, true church of Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to make a difference right here in Dallas. And we have got to live crazy, radically, like Miguel, to forgive those that murder our sons. Paul says in verse 25, I am convinced of this, that I know I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith. Let me say this to you again. If you're here for a week, do you exist for this reason? To help other people progress in their faith and bring joy to them? I spoke in Australia this summer, and I was there. And the motto of this church that I was speaking at at one point was this. We exist to bring glory to God and joy to the city. That's why all of us should be here. You're not here to make a living. You're here to make a difference. Scripture says that if you're alive and you live as you should, it should be for others' progress in the faith and joy. Will you bring that? Paul says this in verse, uh, in verse 26, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. In other words, you're rejoicing, you're exulting. The thanksgiving you bring to God will be because I'm in your midst. Think about this. We're going to have a thanksgiving table a little bit. And with your kids, your wife, your extended family, your neighbor go, thank God we're going to just spend time at thanksgiving that this person, this representative of Jesus is a part of our family. This loving father, this devoted spouse, this gospel advancing, radicalized Christ follower. We don't know what we should thank God for, but let's start with this. This person is in my midst. How would you like that? That's what God wants for you. And so how does that happen? I don't need to go long in application here because Paul did it. And so you're ready? Paul's now going to stop describing who he is as an example to your mood and behavior in the midst of his world. And he's going to tell the Philippian church, this is the application. And so he says this, conduct yourself. That word conduct is a great word. It has inside it the word polis. The word polis is where we get the word politic. It's the word for citizen. And what Paul is saying is, I want to remind you, citizens of heaven, that you should act like you are a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of Philippi. You should conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of your king. 
so that whether I come and live with you again in Philippi or not, I'm going to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way, he says, alarmed by your opponents. Let me just tell you what the application is here. He just says, be steadfast. First of all, remind yourself who you are. You don't go to church. You are the church. You, don't, you live in Philippi, but you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and walk and act like it. Don't be sucked into the world like everybody else in Philippi. That little Rome, you are little Christ. And it's your chance to live for him. So he says, be steadfast and be together. Love one another. Your community should be marked by love and you should live to love other people. And then he says, be bold, verse 28. Don't be alarmed by those who slander you, who tell you they're going to make your life in Philippi miserable. Who cares? You don't care. Philippi is an artifact. Philippi is not going to last And when you act like they can't control you because they threaten to not make you popular in Philippi, it's a sign of them that you know something they don't know. What do you know? You know that God is coming again quickly and his reward is with him and he will recompense men according to their deeds. Be steadfast, be together, be bold, and be not surprised. I end with this, verse 29, because Paul did. He says, for you, Christians citizens of heaven in Philippi. It's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's why I hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There's nothing in the scripture that says, if you trust Christ, your life's going to get easier and better. No, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. You're still going to have people betray you. You're still going to get cancer. You're still going to lose your job. It's going to be a tough world. Just don't make it tougher with your own rebellion against me. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Paul is writing to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven in Philippi, you will suffer. And he bids them to come and live in the midst of the suffering. Because that's where life is found. When you live for the only thing that matters, that they would experience in them the same conflict which Paul says you saw in me and now here to be in me, but I'm doing good. I've got purpose, I'm marked by love, and I have courage in the face of disappointment. Do you think that church would change the world? I do. And I'm praying this one does. Father, would you let us be your church? Would you have us not play games, but would you help us live for Christ? Let it be. Let it be, Lord, that the first name I call is the name of Jesus in the morning. And the last thing I say is, Jesus, let me live a useful and fruitful and productive life again tomorrow. Let us be your people. Let it be in Jesus' name. Amen.